Hey, loyal listening audience, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again on the Noggin Notes podcast and for downloading it or streaming it or doing whatever it is that you do, wherever it is that you do it. We really appreciate your attention because it's an honor to produce content and just disseminate it knowing that people are listening. It's uh, it's pretty humbling, actually. So if you're new, I am Jake Wiskirchen. I'm the host of this podcast. It's a mental health podcast that's been going on for almost two and a half years now, and I'm super proud of that. And today's interview is one with Kat Geiger, who owns and operates a local clinic in Reno, Nevada called Thrive Wellness. And while she and her team focus on eating disorders, that is only a part of what we cover this interview. Uh, I think you're going to find it fascinating. If you're an expecting mother or couple of an expecting expectant child. I don't I don't know. The child isn't expectant. The the baby is to be expected. I, I'm gonna have to do some study on that because I'm not I'm not entirely sure myself how to phrase that. But if you're a couple or a, or a mother who's expecting a child, um, there's some information in here that you should probably listen to. So I'm not gonna tease it out any further than that because I might ruin the podcast. But we are brought to you by my company, Zephyr Wellness. I co own it. I got to give a lot of credit to my co-owner, Lindsay Bell. We've had the company since March of 2015 when we formed, and it's now late 2019, so we're rolling into our fifth year here pretty quickly. It's uh, staggering how quickly time flies. Go to ZephyrWellness.org to find out more, and also we're sponsored very proudly by Audible. And if you have never checked out Audible and you want to find out what the entire world of audio content consists of, go to audibletrial.com slash notes, and you can download a free 30-day trial. And along with that free 30-day trial, you will get one audio selection of your choice. It could be a book or it could be a piece of entertainment of some sort, but I love audiobooks. I love podcasts. I love anything that I can uh, put my earbuds in and listen to or uh, stream through the Bluetooth while I'm driving because I love to enhance and enrich my noggin through said medium. So if you want to join the Audible community, go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes. Helps us out, helps them out, helps you out when you're feeding your brain audibletrial.com slash noggin you can cancel anytime inside the 30 days and still keep your audiobook that you downloaded so thank you for listening we appreciate your loyal listenership and i will now turn it over to kat as i interview her about what's going on in the eating disorder world and some other really fun stuff thanks everybody so in this episode we have with us kat geiger say hi kat hi kat Excellent. I love it. We're kicking off a smart aleck humor already. And Kat owns a therapy agency here in Reno called Thrive Wellness, and you guys specialize in eating disorder treatment, but yes. you also do the whole gamut of um, mental illness as it presents, and you make people mentally well, like we do at Zephyr. Um, and for the listening audience, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit more uh, in a minute, but for the listening audience, if you hear some banging and hammering and... Um, that kind of thing. It sounds like construction. It's because it is construction and um, Zephyr's expanding and just kind of ignore it if you can. If you don't hear it, well, this disclaimer is just uh, for looks, I guess, or listens. So anyway, Kat, uh, you are a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Nevada. Um, You also know some other stuff though. So tell us. 
Yeah. Who are you? What do you do? What, yes. what what hood you rep? So I am Kat Geiger, and if you're very angry with me, Catherine Geiger. I am a licensed clinical social worker, like you Is that said. How your mom says it? Yes, she my shakes mom. Her finger my at mom. You? Yes. yes, if she were here, she would have a lot to say too, particularly about the fact that I go by Kat. But um, I'm also a certified eating disorder specialist, and so I love helping people that struggle with their relationship with food and their relationship with their bodies. Um, and their relationship with movement. And we have a whole amazing team of people. Several of them are certified eating disorder specialists at Thrive Wellness here in Reno that also love to help people that struggle with eating disorders. Uh, website while you're at it. ThriveWellnessReno.com. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Thrive Wellness, ThriveWellnessReno.com. Say that three times fast. Go check it out while you're listening because I know you're probably like doing something around the house and you're listening to this on your phone and you can just pull up the, the browser. What is an eating disorder specialist and how does one get certified? What does that training or certificate process look like? It looks like a whole lot of time and money is what it looks mm-hmm. like. But what it is, is it's uh, through the International Association of Eating Disorder Treatment Professionals, which is the biggest professional organization um, for people that are therapists and physicians and all different types of practitioners that um, specialize in eating disorders. And they have certain requirements. You have to do, I think it's a 2,500-hour internship under another certified eating disorder specialist. That's like our full-blown licensure. Oh, totally. It was it was every bit as hard as my licensure to wow. do and get. And you can't be unlicensed and do your hours. You have to have the majority of the hours done post-licensure. So post-LCSW, post-MFT, wow. post-MD, whatever. And of the percentage of uh, certified eating disorder specialists, how many are talk psychotherapists like you and me versus any other stripe, nurses or doctors? Do you have any idea of the stats? You're, the people can't see you, but yes. <laughs> you just your eyebrows went up and you considered that. Yeah, I love that. I love that um, question. I've never been asked that before. So um, de- I would say the majority of them definitely are. We definitely have a lack of MDs, a lack of RNs that have pursued that additional certification. So if you're out there and you're of one of those stripes, um, consider becoming an eating disorder certified professional because we need you. Yes, we do. Tell me more about what you guys do as an agency. So obviously that's a thing. We'll get into that thing in a minute, but but run the run the gamut of what it is that you treat. So we treat not just eating disorders. Mm-hmm. We treat all different struggles like life transitions, anxiety, depression. I personally love working with people that struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and uh, gosh, but perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is kind of our other big arm of treatment. And we're getting ready to open intensive outpatient treatment for that here in February. So moms and babies, uh, dads too, if they need it. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of really, really cool specializations in that as well. But um, it seems like today we're going to probably talk more about eating disorders. You never never know where this may wander. So even though the podcast may range in various uh, areas, let's let's stay here because you brought it up. So the perinatal uh, treatment realm is um, before birth. Is that it? Um, it's not just before. It's before, during, and a period for a year after. Okay, because we, we typically I think we hear about postpartum Correct. stuff, and that's after the birth. Right, and that is postpartum was talked about quite a lot 
in the past, and now we've really changed that verbiage to include the before and during pregnancy period. Are we trying to change it so we don't use it anymore? Or is there still a, a place for postpartum uh, whatever it may be. I was certainly in the medical field because mm-hmm. certain complications happen after the baby's out, right? But as far as like the psychological world, do, do are we just getting rid of that altogether? We're trying to. Okay. Yeah, so we just call to. it all perinatal because it captures, you know, a, a whole year, which is a significant portion of time mm-hmm. after birth. Okay. So I guess my question is, what is different between somebody who walks in and says, hey, I'm struggling with anxiety they share what they think the uh, causalities are for that, and then we listen to them and we walk them through a, a process of healing versus somebody who walks in pregnant or a couple, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, who's expecting a child, and they say, hey, we have some anxieties, but it's not about the child, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, certainly, you're going to be like, well, yeah, we're going to talk about that, but, but right. what makes it different? Great question. So there's so many things that make it different. One of them is that we know that women in particular are the most at risk for mental health struggles during the period of adolescence, during pregnancy, and during um uh, menopause. So the thing mm-hmm. is that that's part of the chemical process that's going on in your brain and in your body. And that makes you more vulnerable to those struggles. But additionally, there's another human involved here, right? So the mom potentially is pregnant with this baby. And so you and I have high cortisol levels right now. That's just impacting us. But you add in a, a little baby to the mix and it becomes that much more important to catch things quickly. So that baby isn't exposed to those like chronic high cortisol levels. I've, I've heard some studies that say that uh, babies born with in high stress situations be they uh, domestic violence or uh, job change or chronic in and out of um, transition periods or uh, spouse on deployment you know like like high chronic exposure to stress can create a negative or adverse effect in the in the child, meaning like uh, brain doesn't quite develop as quickly. I mean, these things can be overcome, but there's there's some some neurological functioning differences. Is is that what we're what you're trying to do is to point out to these these gals to like be calm for the sake of the baby, or am I misreading that? Uh, that's a piece of it, but it's also for themselves because they're starting to develop their relationship with the baby even in that moment. So it's a family dynamic piece as well. So if you are struggling with depression and anxiety, the thoughts and the feelings that you have about everything in your life tend to be more negative or catastrophic. And so as you're forming that bond with your baby, it's a critical period of time for you to practice good CBT skills, like having having positive, good, nurturing thoughts toward baby and yourself. Mm-hmm. Keep going with that. I want to hear more um, more uh, suggestions for the listening audience. Like, yeah. I try to, try to give this stuff away for free because not everybody can make it into the counseling sure, office. You know? Sure, sure, sure. So I think, I think the way we think about the world and the way we think about our environment and even the people in our families changes the way we feel. This is something we know. And so for, and what we believe. And so it's critically important, particularly during that new period of time when you're introducing baby into your family and into your own mind in your life, you want to practice and be really intentional about um, being honest about struggles, but at the same time, um, getting that extra help of developing that relationship if you're struggling with anxiety or depression. What are some red flags uh, for people going through uh, childbirths and that, that may that may pop that we, we otherwise might not catch? 
Yeah, I think a lot can come up for people as far as their own relationships with their parents. Past trauma is a huge thing that comes up. Um, uh, any sort of physical trauma that they've had can also come up. I have one mom that has come into treatment before for struggling with, um, she had a past trauma that she was dealing with in her life and she was really concerned about what breastfeeding was going to bring up for her. So this is something that comes up for moms. Um, additionally, you have everybody looking up your skirt in the delivery room. And I think um, that's an, I know from personal experience, that's an incredibly vulnerable position to be in. Everybody's up in your space. And if you have any sort of past sexual trauma or any sort of struggles physically, um, maybe you've had a past surgery or something even, and it's terrifying to be in that position. You know, and I wanted to add that the the, uh, concept of looking up your skirt, literally and metaphorically, because when people are barging into your life, offering unsolicited advice on how to handle things, that's really intrusive too, especially if you're already vulnerable because you're carrying a baby and you're going through it possibly for the first time. And it's very frightening because they don't give you a book. Um, But there are many books out there written by people who think they know good, and they often wind up with contradictory information, uh, a lot of which sounds like doom and gloom, and I can speak to this because my wife carried two children, and uh, it was, it just, we ended up retreating into common sense at one point, which helped relax things. Um, but there's that going on too. Talk, talk a little bit about that process and how it's, you know, how you might identify some red flags maybe when people are going through this and... It's not just something that the neighbors or the the friends or family would chalk up to. Oh, you're just pregnant and it's just hormones. Mm-hmm. Like what what would lead somebody to identify something that maybe gets you into professional counseling to help walk through the process as opposed to white knuckling it through and um, maybe doubling down and making it worse. Right. I really like what you just said about how you and your wife were struggling with all these different doom and gloom books, potentially. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, we can just trust our common sense here. You have the ability to do that because you're healthy in in your mind and those kinds of things. But not everybody is in the position where they can retreat back into that. And so when you really struggle with anxiety and when you really struggle with self-doubt, Now, not only are you self-doubting, like, should I wear that outfit out to work today? But now you're going, oh, my gosh, am I hurting my baby? Am I hurting the thing that's the most important in the entire world? Not with the outfit. Not with the outfit. Not with the outfit. But you you do worry about these things when you struggle with anxiety. And I think if you're noticing that and you're finding yourself not being able to trust yourself, that's a really good time to say, you know, I need a little extra help here. You and I have spoken before. Uh, you came and gave a presentation. We'll get into the eating disorder thing in a minute because I think that's really important. Um, <laughs> walked into an eating disorder conversation, a perinatal conversation broke out. Um, but uh, it's okay to laugh. Yeah. But um, we've, we've discussed the difference uh, between surviving and thriving. And there's a reason you named your practice Thrive as mm-hmm. opposed to anything else. Not Survive not survive right yes. uh not that we don't want people to survive we do correct but there's there's a distinction there there is a distinction so and you know i don't love the idea of look for these warning signs and then get help i love the idea of if you're feeling like you could benefit at all from extra help pursuing it at that point so that it doesn't get to the point where you're really suffering because like you said I named thrive thrive because I believe in using mental health um, and mental wellness in order to thrive not just survive 
and one of the damnable miseries about our profession that I repeatedly say, and I will shout it from the rooftops until it changes, is we are, to my knowledge, the only profession underneath the, the banner or the scope of medicine or you know, the medical community that requires a person to be broken before they can go receive treatment from, and and I'm talking about insurance billing and reimbursement. Uh, every other medical avenue, dentistry, pediatrics, optometry, primary care, they say, you know, pop in twice a year, three times a year, get your well person check, you know, pop the hood, check, check the belts and hoses, and make sure you're okay. In our field, you have to have a diagnosis rendered before we can get reimbursed by insurance. And that's, it's, putrid so we almost have to have this i mean we got a lot of stigmas in our profession but that's one where we're telling people that they're not even welcome in the office until they're so far gone that they meet diagnostic criteria which doesn't help people to maintain the thriving no absolutely i totally agree with that um it's it's really difficult that makes it incredibly difficult for us to maintain the thriving and and then it it creates all these other issues along with that as far as like stratification with classes because if you can private pay then you can afford to thrive and so that's that that's the difficult piece there is Whereas if you're struggling and you're on Medicaid, then you can't go in and private pay for those two, three visits to make sure that you're maintaining mental health and wellness. So we try to have a sliding scale for that very reason. Yeah, and that's a. It, I want you to talk about that in a minute because we do something similar here. But one of the real struggles too is as we talk about you know socially and being being aware of what what we're contributing to the to the community. When when you obstruct access to care for people who need it. Um, by putting in financial obstacles or what have you, you end up making the gap wider um, between haves and have-nots because if the have-nots just need like a little boost and they can't get it because they need to be really broken, Mm -hmm. they end up sliding further away, whereas the haves can just be self-aware and go get their tune-up and then get more and more. And we'd like to think that, you know, we can even the playing field by doing something like, say, socialized medicine and, you know, giving it all to, you know, away to everybody. It's like, well, yes, but... Where are you going to get the providers? And let's pretend you still have them. If the system is still in place that requires you to be broken before you can go get care, we still have obstacles. So I really appreciate you bringing that up because it's something that I don't think has really crossed my consciousness until just this moment that um, those who can afford to pay will get the, the care. Uh, but And that in and of itself sounds not so sinister, but it's the inverse where those who cannot afford to pay can't get the care if they're only moderately wounded. Exactly. Uh, Talk about the the sliding scale, because we hear that term uh, tossed around a little bit, you know, do you accept sliding scale, negotiated fee, that type of thing? What what do you guys do? So it it really varies from person to person, depending on what they need, um, what's going on, and what their motivation for treatment is. And do they have other options available to them that are contracted with whoever their insurer is. So it's, we don't have hard and fast numbers that we slide to. We just talk to the individual, determine what it is they need help with and whether what's affordable for them. I don't like to ever give a zero pay option. And the reason for that is because personally, I know that I value something more if I pay something for it. But my $5 is not the same as your $5 or anybody, mm-hmm. you know, else's $5. 
Yeah, I agree. We we ran into that here. We tried the the floor of zero, and it uh, didn't work. There were uh, a hideous amount of no shows yep. when you have a floor of zero and lack of commitment and so forth. So we put the floor at five bucks, as it turns out, uh, but we also capped it at thirty. Now we only do individual sessions, you know, hour long psychotherapy, and we did we chose that range to approximate a copay, um, but. You guys do much more than that, and I want to steer the conversation that direction where we talk about eating disorders versus disordered eating, and speaking of diagnostic criteria and having to render a diagnosis and bill insurance, you've had your share of headaches with that, but before we get into the the nitty-gritty and the politics, talk about what an eating disorder is, the couple of different types there, and uh, what what a course of treatment might look like. Okay, so... You give presentations on this, so I know you can talk. I can. I can do it. I can do it. So eating disorders at their very core are disordered relationships with food and disordered relationships with the body and disordered relationships with movement often, too. Um, There's several different diagnostic specific eating disorders that we could go into, like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, other specified feeding or eating disorder, ARFID, unspecified feeding or eating disorder. And what is what is ARFID for the people who don't know the lingo? Yeah. Avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So these are oftentimes the people that really, really struggle with textures. Sometimes you'll see the co-occurrence of OCD with them. Um, They don't necessarily have the body concerns, but oftentimes they're very underweight and will only eat a few foods. Um, So it's really hard for them to go out to eat, to go to the movies and have popcorn with friends to do these kinds of things, which food is such a social thing for us. And so you really have people that are suffering from isolation and um, depression and anxiety as you have people that struggle with that food intake. When we talk about social connectivity through food, it's, it's there's a real historical cultural basis to that. When you share a meal with a person, it's there's some great significance and depth of intimacy and so forth. And that speaks to the relational capacity of what you alluded to before, where we have disordered relationships, I think is what you said, with food and with movement and uh, what body. Mm -hmm. Um, Speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So the disordered relationship with food is often based on emotion avoidance. So somebody has a trauma in their life. We'll just use that as an example. And they do not want to feel that. They don't want to feel that pain. They don't want to feel that anxiety that the trauma creates. And then you have, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for those of you that are familiar with that, at the very bottom of this pyramid of needs that we have as humans are very basic things like food and water. And then the next rung up on that pyramid is shelter. And at the very, very top of the pyramid is something called self-actualization. So is my life going the way I want it to? Am I pursuing that graduate degree I've always wanted? Or um, did I... Did I um, or the eating disorder certification, which sounds like a graduate degree. Yes, it does. So um, did I do those things? And you don't have to think about the self-actualization piece if you take away the bottom of the pyramid. So if you are starving then that is what your brain is going to think about. It is going to obsessively think about food and water and sustenance if you are starving yourself. So it's a, it's an a experiential, to use an act, which is like a therapeutic modality term, it's experiential avoidance. I'm trying to avoid some negative experience that I'm having, whatever that is, 
by messing with the very bottom of my most basic needs. I like where you're going there, and I haven't conceptualized it that way before, so I appreciate that, that you shared that. I, I've I've talked often in terms of emotional avoidance by uh, rerouting one's thoughts or suppressing or repressing. Um, and I've explained Maslow's hierarchy often to educators and other clinicians to say, like, you know, if the child, for example, isn't eating at home uh, because they're in poverty or maybe there's uh, chaos or, or abuse in the home, uh, that's that's the, the, the lower two levels. That's basic needs and it's uh, safety and security. Right. right above that is love and belonging and above that is esteem needs and then above that is your self-actualization. We, we talk in terms of education, you know, being able to focus in math class or write the social studies paper. Those are esteem needs uh, on the way to self-actualization. And sometimes there's love and belonging in the in the school as well with relationships and best friends and uh, crushes and that kind of thing. But if, if little John, it's always little Johnny, right, or little yes. Susie. Um, if little Johnny and little Susie are afraid to go home because there's abuse in the home or they their stomachs are not full because there's no food in the cabinet, they're not going to be able to focus in math class. But the way that you're painting this is almost a – it's a different way of conceptualizing, like turning off what's important on the rise to self-actualization. And it sounds like a control mechanism. It could be willful. could be unconscious. I'm not sure, but – You're absolutely right about that. I think it's absolutely a control mechanism um, because some people actually believe that eating disorders are a form of anxiety disorder. And if you think about what, at least in the mind of somebody that suffers from an anxiety disorder, what they think is going to soothe that is that sense of control, a sense of control, which we know based on all the research that, yeah, sometimes that can be helpful in certain circumstances, but more so than that, exposure to that that false believed adverse thing is potentially going to soothe their anxiety the most Um, exposure over and over and over again to the extent that they realize, okay, well, this thing isn't as scary, which is often what we do with the food. So part of our treatment program is we have three levels of care, outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization. And a really big part of that is eating with our clients. So exposing them to the stimulus that they're the most afraid of over and over and over again until it's not so scary anymore. And the presumption is the stimulus is the food. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So so at what point do you start delving into the avoidance of whatever the bigger thing is, the trauma or Great the self-efficacy question. or whatever? Yeah. So we do that simultaneously. Mm. Um, we don't, with, with trauma, depending on the severity of the trauma and where the client's at with all of that um, and how fresh it is, it would really, of course, determine, are we going to actually do this simultaneously with the exposure to food? But you can't really process through a trauma if you're not nourished. So if this client's... Right labs are in the crapper, so to speak. We're not going to sit there and talk with them about this really traumatic experience that they had when they were five years old until they're renourished. Yeah, that's uh, Johnny in math class. That's Johnny in math class. That's right. exactly right. And, and I think it's important to point out here because whenever we start talking diagnostics on, in class or on a podcast, people tend to start self-diagnosing, right? Oh, it's, yeah. It's, you know, it's, I, I have OCD tendencies. It's like, careful, yes. careful where you throw that around. Right. Um, there are very specific steps to achieving criteria to meet the diagnosis in, in its full bloom, so to speak. And uh, we don't want to go throwing these things around because what it does is it waters down the people who really, really need the help. And 
uh, we, we end up misascribing our, our struggles with somebody who's at a higher level of care. So you don't walk around with stomach gate going, I, I probably have, you know, kidney cancer. Right. We wouldn't do that in no. the, in the physical realm, but in the mental realm, because it's often very mercurial and poorly understood, it's easy for us to grab these things and then weaponize them too. And go, this weather is so bipolar. It's like, don't, don't do that. You're, you're, oh, no. you're killing the profession. Um, so help us take, take us through some of these criteria. You, you tossed out a few of the, the diagnoses, as opposed to somebody who um, maybe has a you know an avoidant texture you know type of thing you know rise to diagnostic criteria for an RFID that's really life interfering versus somebody who just say doesn't like the taste or texture of popcorn, where's the difference break out? Good question. So for all mental health struggles, what I really think, I used to actually think that the five axes diagnosis was really, really helpful because it very much outlined one of the most important pieces, which is how is this impacting the person's um, axis four, which is like their ability to function at their job, their ability to function in their family system their ability to be a good friend to someone. There's a, uh, what Kat's referring to, if you're not familiar with the uh, inside baseball is uh, one edition ago of the DSM or the diagnostic and statistical manual, which is the book we use to identify struggles. They had a, what's called a five axis diagnostic uh, markup. And so one, two, three, four, five, and four was the global assessment of functioning. And, and that's how you function in your various areas. And they got rid of that. And it was really disappointing. Um, maybe it was five. Maybe it was, it was four. Five. Yeah, I think it was five. Yeah. But, um, but they got rid of that and we don't have axes anymore. We just have give us your diagnosis. And, and it's some people like that because it's simplified paperwork and whatnot, but others like us, we like the detail because it's indicative indicative of people's overall like you know systems and how they're working so anyway go on with that i didn't want to like throw people off yes totally so so that's how you know if is this really impacting my family life am i fighting with my family about this is this like i can't sit down and have a family meal or i have to prepare a second dinner to do to be able to sit with my family um at that point i would say reach out for help and if you don't know reach out for help anyway and ask Ask somebody that is familiar with those things. And it's not just I, I prepare a dinner for myself because I don't like walnuts and everybody else likes walnuts. It's um, you feel bad about it and Guilty. you're not okay with it. Right. right? And so one of the operative phrases in diagnosing someone is uh, there's, a, there's a phrase that says uh, clinically significant distress or impairment in important areas of functioning or whatever important means to you. But typically it's social, family, legal, financial. Uh, so if it's clinically significant, and there's a definition for that too, uh, distress or impairment, then then you want to you want to look at maybe it's a it's more severe than just a, a, a preference issue. Absolutely, much more severe than a preference issue. So I'll have people that will sit down with their family and they literally won't eat anything, or they'll have to prepare an entirely different meal. So the family's having spaghetti, but they're absolutely terrified beyond terrified of carbs, and they'd feel horrifically guilty if they had them, and they're terrified of what it will do to their body, and then they'll lose their job or you know something really dramatic, and um, they'll so instead they'll make themselves like I'm going to have a piece of chicken and some broccoli. If I'm listening to this and I know nothing of this field, it sounds completely irrational, totally off the reservation to hear somebody say, I'm terrified of carbs. Now, we've all probably had the experience where we have moderated our intake for one reason or another, but this is not what we're talking about either. Um, Explain terrified of food. 
So think about something, Jake, that you are scared of. What are you scared of? I'm I'm afraid that I might actually be afraid of something. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we uh, have some... a pl- we have a therapist for you. Yeah. <laughs> I I am terrified. I'm absolutely ridiculously terrified of yellow jackets, which is strange because we have a ton of them in our yard, and I try to be brave for my kids. Right. And I hang the yellow jacket traps, but they can't see that my heart is about to pound out my chest. Even I'm not allergic. I really just don't like. I've been stung with them before, and they like they hammer at you, mm. and and they sting you multiple times, and it's just really unpleasant. And they and I swear they're like little like terrorist kamikaze yellow jackets that don't care who they sting or when and they're totally arbitrary in their attack so i'm 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 frightened of them yes so imagine now if a couple things imagine if you like refused to ever play with your kids in the backyard because there were yellow jackets out there that's a life interfering Mm. behavior Mm -hmm. right your kids are sad they want you to come out and so imagine now that three times a day you have to sit in close proximity to yellow jackets and touch them in some way. So this is what it feels like to have an eating disorder and be afraid of food, be afraid of certain types of food and afraid of what that food is going to do to you. What are what are the other disorders? We talked about the little texture one there that um, you know, people people might struggle with where they have to create a brand new meal, but there's there's other types where you you eat and then you you barf and then there's other types where you just don't eat at all and then um try to you know, relax. Come on, peanut gallery. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Amy, so, who's who's over there? Amy, introduce yourself yeah, from afar. Can you hear me from back there? Probably if you speak up. Um, I'm Amy, program director of Thrive. Yep. That is all. <laughs> that she is she all. came along for social media purposes, but she's the one cackling if you can hear it. Yes. And I'm and I'm trying to be you know light and fun and colloquial about a very serious topic, so I use the word barf instead of um, yes uh, purge or yes. uh, or vomit. Via emesis. So, so what bulimia nervosa, we'll start there. It's incredibly common at some point, particularly with women, to struggle with bulimia in some way. Now, bulimia can manifest as many, many things. What's incredibly common? Bulimia to develop no, I mean, like, like clinically. Percentage-wise or like how, how, oh, how common? Like, like some, some studies estimate that there's about one out of five women that at some point in their life has had a clinically significant case of bulimia nervosa, huh. like diagnosable. So it's much more common. And I think this is partially outside rabbit trail for just a minute here. I think this is really, really common because food is such a social thing. And because right now what's really popular is to do things like talk about this new diet that you're on in the office. It's something that many, many people have in common. It's not a deep, vulnerable conversation. People like to talk about paleo a lot. They like to talk about, I, I lived for a long time in Berkeley. There they like to talk about your grass-fed organic turkey that you're going to have for Thanksgiving. Um, but meanwhile, there's actually people that because of this topic of conversation, you you just you're introduced to this idea constantly of if I'm not like that, if I'm not doing those things, then in some way I don't belong. Well, and that's I mean, even just the separation of the ability to afford a different diet, whether or not it's fad, uh, is quite discriminatory and classist in and of itself, right? So because it takes a lot more money to find the grass-fed turkey. I don't even where does do grass-fed turkeys exist? Do they don't even run on grass? I, I made do that they? up. I okay. made that one up. I thought that was a good one. They don't run on grass. Yeah. Actually, uh, I don't know. They eat everything. I think. Yeah. And seeds. Yeah. Seeds. Yeah. So, so seed-fed turkey. Point being, it's rare. And yeah. what is a rare commodity in the open market? Expensive. 
Yep. Because it's hard to find. Presuming there's a demand for it, right? Mm-hmm. So if all of a sudden there's this increased demand for these uh, diets that uh, have a particular tags on them, non-GMO or organic or whatever it is, then demand increases, supply is whatever the supply is, uh, price is going to go up. And so if it's suddenly trendy and all your friends are doing it and you can't because you're struggling with food relationship, mm-hmm. that puts you on the outs. Absolutely. So I think that's that's a huge part of it. But to go back to your original question, which was talk about the different types of eating disorders. So bulimia is really this pattern of you do restriction in public, essentially. So if you're eating food with your friends that you want to belong with, you're maybe not eating carbs or you're eating things in a certain way that looks good. And you can hide behind the diet. Yes, you can hide okay. behind the diet. Absolutely. So they all order pizza and you go, I'll pick the pepperoni off. Yeah, right. I'm well, good. I'm good. I'm just doing I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, yeah, a little, something little like punchy that. with it. Yeah. Something like that. And so then when they leave, when you go home, you then order another large pizza and eat the whole thing in a very short period of time by yourself. And I'm picking a random thing. Sure, yeah, you know, yeah. it might not Stick be. Stick with the metaphor. <laughs> yeah, that much. But then you engage in whatever your purging behavior is. So that could be emesis or barfing, as Jake likes to say. Ralphing. Ralphing. Um, <clears throat> or that could be I'm going to exercise for three hours right now. Or that could be, I'm going to use laxatives, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go use Coke in the bathroom mm-hmm. so that I'm up all night, so I burn this off. Is, is cocaine prevalent, or is it amphetamines, methamphetamines, like totally. all, in Nevada, any stimulant? Yeah, Coke's making a comeback, actually. But, um, but yes, amphetamines are very, very common in Nevada to use, particularly if you're wanting to restrict your food intake. Oh, well, it's an appetite suppressant. Yeah. Yeah. Any sort of stimulant. Coffee is m- the most common one, though. So uh, you'll often see people that drink coffee all day long and don't eat because it's an appetite suppressant. That's why my barista is really thin. Yeah. No, just kidding. No. Um, but, but yeah, true. I mean, if you're, if you're drinking coffee all day and you're ingesting stimulants, you're less likely to be hungry. Not yep. only because you got fluid in your stomach, which sends a signal to the brain that you're full, right. but also the, the caffeine itself. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right, so let's talk treatment. Okay. How do you attack this? Other than I mean, we heard about the the, the exposure, um, you know, stick your hand in the bees or whatever. Yeah. Uh, don't make me do that. I won't. And um, and then there's the conversation about trauma, and I want to hover there for a second. Is there a presumption of trauma in most of these? You know, um, I I think some people would say yes. I don't necessarily myself personally believe in presuming that. Um, I I think that often it is very, very common and you should always screen for it if you have somebody with an eating disorder or any sort of anxiety disorder and depression. However, um, I... I would say about 50% of the time, it's a big T trauma. And when I say big T, I'm talking like... An event, you mean? A big event, right. Versus little T, which is like, you know, things that we go through throughout the day that feel traumatic to us. Okay, so uh, big T versus little T, I want to stand there for a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Big T, uh, salts in the past, um, you know, that kind of thing. Major, like, life-altering events. Uh, Could be one, could be multiple... um, exposure to terrorist attack combat whatever little t and i'm just i'm looking at you and you're nodding and smiling like i'm on track yeah. uh, little t bullying um childhood uh emotional neglect maybe like parents were both there but uh not super present right. uh that that would be little t trauma mm-hmm. now what's non-trauma that might result in an eating disorder 
Um, so the development of, and I mentioned this before, like an obsessive compulsive disorder. So a lot of that or a development of bipolar disorder with a little side of bulimia. So not little, I'm being glib, but, um, but so these are very genetically based disorders Mm -hmm. oftentimes. Like we know with, um, for example, with bipolar disorder, if you have one parent that's bipolar, you have a 25% chance of inheriting bipolar disorder. If you have two, you have a 50% chance of inheriting bipolar disorder. So these are very genetically based disorders. So not every everything is based on trauma. So these often co-occur with eating disorders. How do you attack the non-eating disorder disorder? Because that's what we call them all in, in our language. They're all disorders. You call them um, non-eating disorders? Yeah, yeah. Non- no. <laughs> for, for, this, for this conversation purposes. So um, you're talking about the eating disorder that's a spinoff of the, the, the other thing. Right. Uh, whatever it may be. And presumably we're attacking the other thing as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and I want to make sure we're giving hope to the people who are like hope is dimming when they hear something oh. like genetic predisposition because it's they're so like, scary. oh, no, I'm doomed for the rest of my life to oh. struggle with this thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I've been saying for a long time is um, outside of some structural deficiency that we can track, like, you know, uh, in the brain or whatnot, um, if it's a true mental disorder, it's a true psychological disorder, then we can truly uh, reroute to health. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it is overcomable. Mental illness is overcomable. Um, and I want to make sure that we're inspiring people to say that you're not doomed for the rest of your life simply because you had two parents who had bipolar disorder and then you developed, you know, a manic swing mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, no, this is just the end for me. There's nothing oh, I can right. do, right? Yeah, no, um, it's very manageable. So I think that's the that's the biggest thing to know about those disorders is that they're very manageable, but you also need to be managing them. Mm-hmm. They're, it's, it's, it's a necessity if you have that diagnosis to manage it. So what that looks like is typically medication and therapy. Um, and we it's so we were talking about the differences between mental health versus physical health. This is another area where if your pancreas was not making insulin, with these little islets of Langerhand in your pancreas stopped making insulin, then we would call that type 1 diabetes. And you probably wouldn't even think twice about going to see an endocrinologist and getting on insulin and making sure that you're managing your diet and going to a certified diabetes educator for that. But if you have, and there are some structural defects in the brain that we can Mm -hmm. know, but it's just another body organ. It's like, it's manageable. So we can go, we know that your brain has a structural defect, for example. So we then say, okay, well, let's manage that with medication and therapy, just like diabetes. It's no different. It's just another body organ. Uh, How do we find those and confirm etiology, make sure that it's, you know, not, uh, environment or, or nurture as they say it's it's nature so you know it sounds like you know brain scans and rf you know imaging and all that yeah. stuff is very uh, uh not rf i'm sorry fmri imaging is very expensive and not too many places do it <laughs> and so if we want to pin it down and we're not just shooting in the dark uh presuming that you know medication is working and it's not something else that was you know you get two parents struggling with bipolar disorder, you're, you're going to be prone to some mood swings. Um, you know, can we, can we come out of that at some point or is it, you know, wh- where do we pin it down, I guess, or do we, or where do we just pin whatever. down the uh, disorder? Yeah. Like the, the, the origins of it. Um, oh, and, and sometimes or do we just say whatever's necessary. working for you is right. working. Like I would say 90% of the people that develop type one diabetes don't know what the final straw was. Sometimes it was a virus. Sometimes it was this, sometimes mm. it was that. It's always something environmental that mm. activates that biological switch. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's the way I conceptualize it. It's biopsychosocial. 
right? Mm -hmm. So we have the biological component. So you inherit a propensity to develop maybe an eating disorder. Great phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the environment does something somehow to flip that switch on to on with the propensity. Trauma is a great example of what could do that. And then the social environment sustains the disorder because we talked about that, like the culture around food and those kinds of things. So let's switch back to eating disorders for a minute. Mm -hmm. There's a different part of your brain um, that we see that looks structurally different for people. Now, we don't know if that's like, okay, is that because we engaged in this eating disorder behavior and we rerouted and rewired? Or is that because this is just a functional brain or a structural brain change that is different and people are born that way? We don't know that. And that's really not even that important because what we can change and what we can do is change the environment and change the um, thing that is frequently activating the disordered behavior right right. so those are things we can change and work on and do and we know that we can restore healthy functioning for everybody all the research backs that up that's awesome because in my head when i'm asking these questions it seems a little pedantic and maybe hair splitting but there are people who just really hang their head on certainty right and they really just really want to know it's like well you may never get to yeah. And and you have to learn to be at peace with that. And that's part of embracing mystery. And, and there's ways you can practice that, which bring you to peace. So a person who um, levels up to what you guys do, partial hospitalization. You don't have a residential program, right? No, we so, don't. Um, partial hospitalization would be the next highest. That would be um, how, how often, what's it look like? Are they... You know, in touch with medical professionals, I presume everybody is. Yes. Ex- explain the different levels there. Yeah. So, well, to speak to the medical treatment piece first, we have a whole team, a comprehensive team. So we have registered dietitian. We have um, a primary care provider, an internist who's working on things. We have a psychiatrist and we have the psychotherapists. Um, so every single one of those components is critical when you struggle with an eating disorder to move toward that recovery process or that recovery place. Um, For partial hospitalization, it's eight hours a day. So for us, we kind of think about it in terms of meals and snacks. So it's two supported meals a day and potentially a snack. So we want to, we have to stretch out our partial hospitalization. You might go to another partial hospitalization program for depression that's only six hours a day because mm. they don't have to think about the meals and snacks component gotcha. Gotcha. Um, but or, or that medical component. But we have to think about that with eating disorders. And for us, we do two psychotherapy sessions, one registered dietitian session, um, two meals and snacks a day, multiple therapy groups, family systems to make sure we're addressing all those environmental factors yeah. that play into the eating disorder um, and a psychiatry and uh, internist session every week. So I know what I'm about to ask is impossible to answer because the answer is always it depends. But what's uh, what can somebody expect if they come in and get admitted to the to the PHP partial hospitalization program? How long? Will that sustain before they see some a step down? Hmm, good question. It depends. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Smart Alec. <laughs> so I think if we had to kind of average it out, it would typically be somewhere between 30 and 45 days. And That's a long time. Yeah, it's a commitment. Wow. Recovery is a really serious commitment when you're struggling. Now, remember, not everybody has to go to that level of care. Mm-hmm. Some people are just fine and are able to really move in the direction they want to go when they're in just regular old outpatient, seeing a dietitian and a therapist and right. a psychiatrist. But, um, but with PHP, 
the level, I always say the level, the severity of the eating disorder has to be matched with the strength of treatment. So the strength of treatment has to be greater than the strength of the eating disorder. So if you need PHP treatment, you have a pretty significant struggle with an eating disorder. So that's why the time takes so long. And now also we don't have residential treatment here in Reno. Right. So, um, well, that's not true. Reno Behavioral Health is trying to um, to do yeah, a they PhD just program. Yeah, program. Yeah, yeah, our uh, RTC program. Yeah, and but for a, for a little while there, we didn't have it, and uh, it's sometimes people that are a little bit more significantly struggling end up in PHP for many reasons. One of them is because of access to care. Mm-hmm. One of them is because insurance doesn't want to pay for that level of care and they can't really afford that level of care mm-hmm. to, uh, for through private pay mm-hmm. to, to kind of give a nod to our previous discussion about right. that stratification. And um, I think, you know, it just, it's hard. It's hard to break behavior patterns and it takes a long time. Yeah, it's a the, long game. Yeah, I frequently say it didn't get here overnight and it's not going to get undone That's overnight. That's exactly right. But the hope is that it lies in the fact that it's a little bit like wandering off your path. You're going to go walk to the lake and you ended up in the middle of the forest. And when you're in the middle of the forest, you, you realize, holy cow, I'm off the trail. And it, you don't know where you are. You just know you're not at the lake. And you may have wandered many miles into the forest once you get a map and a compass or these days a GPS unit. Mm -hmm. And you look down and you go, I'm 20 miles off the path. Um, But with adequate counseling and, uh, and feedback and support, the path back to the lake is only four miles. You, you don't have to walk back the entire 20 and restart the journey. And that's the benefit of self-awareness is that it accelerates your path to recovery. So uh, hold hope, those of you who are uh, struggling and think that you've wandered many miles off of what your path is supposed to be with some, some feedback and some guidance. Uh, the road is not going to be swift, but it will be swifter than the path that got you there. Yes, for sure. Do you want to... Uh, bang on the the politics a little bit and talk about insurance reimbursements or is that we can yeah because because we you know there's the gap between like the the self-pay and then the indigent you know government funded there's there's something called uh managed care or uh you know hmo organizations that step in commercial insurance but they're a struggle too and why is that because this seems this is literally life or death yeah seems like a no-brainer to get approval for a program but It's really cool that Amy is actually our peanut gallery today because Amy does fight those battles for us with insurance companies. So if we have somebody that's in treatment at our PHP level of care, partial mm-hmm. hospitalization, then um, she's having to call sometimes as frequently as every three days to justify to the insurance company why they continuously need that level of care. Now, there's advantages of that um, as far as it's making sure that our treatment holds stays accountable. On, yeah, yeah, it holds us accountable. Yeah. That's really good to make sure our, our documentation is in place. But there's also disadvantages to that. So if you have an insurance company that doesn't understand or know or specialize in eating disorders, then you're getting Joe Schmo on the other end of the line who doesn't. Poor Joe. Poor Joe. Father of Johnny and Susie. Yes. We just don't know. They don't know 
uh, what they're doing. And so a lot of times it takes getting denied and resources on our end. So let's say Amy is fighting this battle for, for our client who's in PHP. She gets denied by Joe, Mm -hmm. um, who's at the insurance company telling us whether we get to have more authorized treatment days. And then we take it peer to peer. So that means now I have to get on the phone with a physician who may, again, may or may not be familiar with eating disorders Mm -hmm. and justify to him. And then if that doesn't happen, then they have to have the whole chart, review the whole chart by a third party. Meanwhile, this client's been in treatment for an additional five days. Yeah. And off your dime. Off our dime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's complicated. It's complex. And it's definitely, it creates a lot of disparity. You and I both own businesses that do the same thing, and we, we both battle this insurance problem, and we have disclaimers. I'm assuming you have one. We have one that says it's not our job to know what your insurance benefits are, and it's a, it sounds a little cold and calloused, um, but at the end of the day, it's not, and, and it requires a great investment of resources to find out. What you do with Amy and what we do with Lauren at Zephyr, for example, is um, it's truly it's a service. It's, a, it's out of your and my pockets. We are the business owners, and we are, you know we take literally our money and put it into someone else's paycheck on behalf of the client because it would be highly unfair for that client who's receiving treatment to go and get on the phone with the insurance company, him or herself. That's really, really unfair. So what we're doing is we're offering this service. And I, I want to make everybody who's listening very, very aware of this. So when you go to the hospital and um, something gets denied for your you know, your MRI or your, your tooth extraction or whatever it may be, tooth extractions are cheap. I don't know why I picked that one. But um, the insurance company denies it. And your hospital administrative staff or your dental uh, care professionals pick up the phone and and call your insurance company on your behalf. Thank them. Yes. (laughs) Because it is not their job. It is your job. But uh, people, you know, just walking the earth with their insurance coverage don't know this stuff. And it's, it's really... It's really easy to slip into the whole, you know, insurance companies are big, bad, faceless entities at which we throw eggs and they're sinister. But it's really not. It's about it's about accountability. We all want to, like, you know, feed our families at the end of the day. But we also want to help humanity. And we and the insurance companies want to make sure they're not getting defrauded. And so right. that's why these processes are in place. They're good and, and helpful. But sometimes they can be a pain. And that doesn't even take into account the insurance companies that don't fund those types of programs right and there and you run into that sometimes they don't they just pay, p- partial hospitalization for eating disorders is not part of the benefit p- package yes i think that part is really difficult is that sometimes particularly with self-funded plans yes um, they will have little clauses in there like oh well this person doesn't have a dietetics benefit and and i get it like when you're sitting and you don't know about eating disorders when you're sitting as the person with let's let's make up Susie and Joe Schmo's um, little organization over here, when they're negotiating with the insurance company what they're going to provide for their employees, they're not, they don't have eating disorders on their mind. And so mm. it feels really easy to throw out something like dietetics, like, oh, yeah, we don't need to cover that for our employees. Or we'll just, we'll just cover these few things for our employees. But then when, when that hits the ground and what that actually looks like in practice is somebody with an eating disorder that is now potentially at risk. Let's make something up for refeeding syndrome, which is a really lethal condition that you can develop as you're gaining weight with an eating disorder. If you've been anorexic, um, because they don't have somebody dietetically to manage that's familiar with the formulaic 
um, pieces of how to make sure somebody doesn't develop that. What is refeeding syndrome? Refeeding syndrome is a sudden severe electrolyte imbalance um, that happens when you've been starving yourself for a really long period of time and then you reintroduce food. Um, People that struggle with anorexia or are severely underweight are at risk for it. Um, So in other words, if you've been taking in about 200 calories a day and then all of a sudden you're taking in 1,500 calories a day, you could potentially be at really significant risk no matter what your body weight is. And what's it do? Because it sounds like, oh, you, your electrolyte imbalance is oh, drinking right. Gatorade. Yes. Yeah. So electrolyte uh, electrolytes definitely regulate the rhythm of our heart. So it can suddenly stop your heart at any point. Yeesh. Yes. The other risk is low blood glucose and slipping into a coma because of that. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of things that are very, very nuanced with eating disorders mm-hmm. and insurance companies don't always understand that. And and to put a bow on it, I don't think clinicians do either, which is why I'm glad we're doing this because we do have some junior clinicians and some active clinicians listen to the podcast. And, and eating disorders is one of those scopes of competence that uh, we talk about scopes of practice where you're allowed to do everything under the law, but should you? Um, you want to get adequate training and experience. You really want to know where your boundaries are so that we can make proper referrals to a place like yours uh, who can wrap them around in services. And we don't just go freelancing it in our offices without the dietitian, without the endocrinologist if necessary, without the physician, um, and without a really good substantive knowledge of the risks of what I could be doing as I'm talking to this person about trauma recovery uh, and oh, by the way, hey, have you eaten today? Um, that's yeah. that's not the appropriate approach. So, yeah. Yeah, clinicians, have you barfed today? Yeah, have you barfed? Have you Ralph today? Um, how much? How Ralphing much have you done? Um, <laughs> how barfing are you? Uh, no, I kid, I kid. But uh, but seriously, take it seriously. <laughs> um, I always struggle to wrap up because it sounds like I'm asking somebody to go to the gallows, you know, any last words. Um, but uh, we, we want to give a plug for you for sure. ThriveWellnessReno.com. You did just open a new location. You moved, correct? We are like moving. We're or in moving. process. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Over When's that going to be complete? 491 Court Street will be our new eating disorders treatment program location um so we're really separating that out from our other location oh you're keeping it you're not moving the whole for a thing? while okay. yeah for a while wow. we'll see how it looks we may move the whole operation at some point but for a while we're going to just separate programs good and see for how you that that's awesome yeah and that's that's a big pretty house if i, cor- it is. If I recall correctly right i'm very excited about it. it's 112 years old which wow. is it translates into really poor insulation and asbestos and all those really fun things for property owners but it's gorgeous and wonderful and it feels like a very nurturing environment and it's a home environment so i think that has a lot of therapeutic value does it back onto the truckee river yes awesome and the park i'm taking a tour i know Uh, i don't know when but it'll happen so the park what is the park downtown no, not Idlewild. Barbara Bennett? Uh-uh. Mm-mm. It's the Wingfield. one where they have art. T- yes, Wingfield. Wingfield. Yes. It backs up to Wingfield, yeah. and it's got those tennis courts right behind it, yeah. and it's really cool. That is super cool. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This, I, I always like 
when people provide content for this show. <laughs> Thank you and, so much um, for the invitation. Yeah, it's it, and we try to keep it broad ranging and still tied to mental health. We're you know pr- proudly truly international, not just because we're on the interwebs, but um, because we've we've spanned many countries. And this is, you know, mental health knows no no uh, jurisdiction. Uh, it knows no political borders, and certainly uh, eating disorders don't either. And so, in if we're reaching different countries and you have um, maybe inquiries about how people can get help. We're very obviously Nevada-centric and U.S.-centric. Do you know any international organizations or is there one in the U.S. that can maybe link to others? Because we do all have the interwebs. So, great question. I like, if you're international, accessing IADAP, as I mentioned before, the International Association of Eating Disorder Treatment Professionals, Mm. and looking to see if there is a certified eating disorder specialist in your area is always a good idea. Um, Also, accessing NIDA, national, I know that's country, country specific, but national eating disorders association. Um, so looking and seeing if they have resources for out of the country would be a good idea as well. That's awesome. Uh, thank you very much for joining Kat Geiger from thrive wellness and peanut gallery, Amy, um, on behalf of the Zephyr wellness family and the Naga notes team, we all thank you for listening and wish you great mental wellness. Bye-bye.